Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Well, hello, and thanks for listening. Today we are doing our second book club podcast, and this time we're covering four older books written written by women from the past. And as I said, uh, for the first book club podcast where we discussed biographies, our hope is that you'll be encouraged as you hear about the lives and teaching of these women and that it will be a means of discipleship for you. So um, will everyone introduce themselves? DJ, do you want to start? Sure. My name is DJ Mitchell. And uh, I'm retired. I have three grown children. They're 32, 36, and 38. Oh, gosh, they're going to get me for forgetting. Um, I'm from Chattanooga originally. And uh, I've been in Knoxville since 2000. And I, my husband passed away in 2004. And I have keep staying here. So... Uh, my name is Jenna Barbie, and I am wife to John Barbie, and mother to Eleanor, who's nine, and Sam, who is seven. And I grew up in Knoxville, lived um, my whole life here, and I spend my days homeschooling and taking care of my family, and I try to squeeze in reading time whenever possible. Uh, hi, my name is Jennifer Douglas, and I'm married to John Douglas, and we have two little boys. Easton is four, and Wilder is two. <laughs> Didn't name my little boy Wilder. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we, I grew up in Knoxville. We moved when we first got married to Greenville, South Carolina, and then we've been back here for four years. And my name is Janet Holbrook. And my husband is Joe. I have four adult children. I'm not going to try and remember their ages. <laughs> uh, three married, one engaged, um, and I love them all. I love my daughter-in-laws and my son-in-law and my future son-in-law. I have eight grandchildren, soon to be nine. They all currently live in town and keep our days very full. I count my children among my best friends. And we feel very blessed. Um. Will you share your testimony, Janet? Uh, yes. Um, I grew up Catholic, and I come from a large family, seven girls. And yes, it was just like you think a house full of seven girls does. <laughs> um, I was taught from an early age to believe in God and that He ruled everything. God saved me my sophomore year of high school through the Catholic charismatic movement that my mother was involved in in the early 70s and through the influence of my school friends who were good Baptists and they would invite me to Sunday night services and camps in the summer. So when I got to college I joined a campus ministry that was on fire for the Lord, radical, remember it was the 70s, and passionate about the Bible. Then I moved to Knoxville when Joe and I got married and we continued with this campus ministry even though we were raising a family at a time, at the time we had a vision for the campus. That ministry eventually became Cornerstone. My parents taught me to fear God, and my works were heavily emphasized in my relationship with Him. I brought this legalism with me into my new relationship with Jesus. But God was so kind and merciful to teach me about grace 
through the pastor's patient teaching. I think it took Bill three years to convince us. And read books by John Piper and the Puritans. And then a very pivotal book was um, Stepping Heavenward by Elizabeth Prentice. And that totally turned my world upside down. I am sad to say it took years for me to grasp the truths of grace and let go of legalism as it means to please God. And I still see old thought patterns try and influence my feelings and thoughts against God and against the grace that Jesus' death on the cross bought for me. But my journey isn't over. When I was young, I thought I'd be almost perfect by now. And uh, But God has faithfully keeps peeling back the layers like an onion, and he's very zealous to change me to look more like him. And uh, the older I get, the more I see how unlike him I am, and the more I see the preciousness of grace that he lavishes on me in spite of it. He, the creator of the universe, calls me his, and I feel that I'm just beginning to grasp that truth and all the blessings that go with it. Thank you. Very good. Um, I love that your testimony included Elizabeth Prentice's book, which is also an old classic that actually made me think, oh, we should have done that book. But I know that is a beloved book by so many, um, so many folks. So I'm glad. I'm glad you remind us about that one. Um, speaking and it's in the bookstore, I think. Oh, there you go. it used to be. I, I think you're right. Um, speaking of. Of, of these kinds of books. Jen, you uh, <laughs> have had a crush on one of these ladies for a while now. Um, you've read a lot of Edith Schaefer's books. So tell me how you found out about her and started reading her. It was funny. Only like three of my friends know how much I love Edith. And I was like, which one of you told on me? <laughs> <laughs> I <won't say. laughs> um, so I was texting my good friend Lauren Simmons um, about some it was parenting her. stuff. And she sent me a page from one of Edith's books, and next thing you know, I've read almost all of her books. <laughs> what do you like about them? Um, so I actually have a quote yeah. that kind of, I feel like, sums up from one of her books. Why I love her so much. Um Um, so it says, the Bible is the word of God, and God's word is fantastically balanced. Human beings are very unbalanced and prone to go off on tangents in every area of life, with too great an emphasis on one thing, leaving out an, another important thing altogether. None of us will ever be perfectly balanced in our spiritual lives, our intellectual lives, our emotional lives, our family lives, in relationship with other human beings, or in our business lives, but we are challenged to help to try with the help of God. We are meant to live in the scriptures. So I feel like she just has done that. She's lived in the scriptures and how she views life is just very balanced. And even culturally, I think we can tend to put God in like this Western culture box um, and think these truths have to look a certain way just because we see them look a certain way. And I feel like because of her background, she's just aware that these eternal truths can look really different culturally. And she talks about that in her book, which for me is helpful because I never left the country. So <laughs> that's great. Um, any specific ways you've benefited just generally from her writings? Um, yes. So I think I have just grown in 
I think she's very aware of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, but also of God's deep, intimate love for us as people created in his image um, and how we can affect people every day and worship God every day in very just mundane tasks. And so I think I have just grown in loving God and worshiping God and my view of what is God honoring from reading her books. That's great. So tell us about the book that you read for this this discussion specifically and tell us a little bit about Edith Schaefer. Okay, so the book is called What is Family by Edith Schaefer. And Edith was married to Frances Schaefer, who a lot of people know. He's a famous theologian. She had four kids. And they basically opened this um, evangelical Christian organization in Switzerland where they opened up their home and people could um, come stay for however long they wanted to. And it was kind of a forum for philosophical and religious beliefs to be discussed. And um, so give us a little bit of a description, outline of... The What is Family book? Um, so I think she saw that the survival of the family was being threatened um, as never before, and so she wanted to present family in a winsome way and a view of what family life could be. And so in her book, she kind of just explores some of the problems and challenges facing Christians today and focuses on um, the beautiful things a family can be and we can um, kind of foster in our own families. What was most encouraging or helpful? Uh, so I really loved so many of the chapters, so it's kind of hard for me to narrow down some to talk about. But um, two chapters that I loved, one was she talks about a family being a shelter in a storm. And so she just kind of talks about how God comforts us in various trials and how even... We all face trials, no matter how little aches and pains or big they can be. And you can look back and have, even in painful experiences, fond memories of these difficult things because of the comfort that you have received from other people, which I thought was really neat. Um, And she talks a lot about just menial, mundane tasks being worshipped to God and God-honoring. And so I have a little quote I'm going to read from the book, um, which is really helpful for me just as a mom. Um, so she, she's, she goes into lots of detail, and she's very practical. She's, she's already gone into, like, what should be in your first aid box and <laughs> <laughs> these details. Um, but she says, children love the attention of a little bandage, even when the cut or minor burn, even when it's a cut or a minor burn, and should not be pushed aside and told it doesn't hurt. This is the way compassion is learned. If you want little people to care about your headache and bring you a cold face cloth with compassion and keep quiet because mommy's head hurts, then you need to treat their little hurt, their hurts little and big with a measure of compassion. A tiny bandage is a very small price to pay for the investment in teaching compassion. A little milk of magnesia tablet to chew or a bit of peppermint tea is a small attention to provide even if you think that my tummy hurts, I feel sick, is only a cry for some notice. The psychological help being given far outweighs the bit of time and trouble taken to treat with seriousness the request for help. Yes, you are ready to give the help, which is very much needed physically, but you can't be sure when the seemingly unimportant request is the most important psychological help that can be given for the person's development as a secure person. 
In this way, you are carrying out God's command to do unto others as you would have done unto you. So it's just sweet little things like that. It just remind me kissing boo-boos. <laughs> you know, it can really just reflect God's character. And so these moments are not to be looked over as unimportant. She talks in that chapter on how to give old people baths and... Um, just handicap people that you may have in your family or from outside how to really incorporate them and be creative. Mm-hmm. And so That's that great. was one of my favorites. Um, any surprises or paradigm shifts? Um, so I think for me doing, I was saved through outreach of a neighbor and then got plugged into VFC. And I think being a young Christian in that community, it was a temptation for me to think that I was only glorifying God if I was sharing the gospel with people or meeting with girls all the time. And I think as my responsibilities grew as I got married and as a mom, and I saw that I couldn't do those things, I think um, it just really kind of re-envisioned my view for what is glorifying to God and worship to God. And so I think my, like I said before, my relationship's just grown with the Lord in that way. That's great. And um, any specific things you want to grow in or change? Um, yeah, so my my husband's family, they always say the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And so I feel like in this season of life, there's just my kids have a lot of needs. And I feel like a lot of friends, you know, we talk about different things. And my husband can be very just, he's kind of a contented guy and doesn't really vocalize a lot of his needs. So I think that is something I still, I could really use to grow in is just thinking on creative ways to really serve him and even just praying. I think if it's not like an actual task, it would be helpful. So good. Any other quotes that you just got to share? Uh, it's funny. I had like, I had so many. <laughs> um, I'll share one more about education. Um, so I think my probably second favorite chapter was the one on education. And she talks about scripture, how we separate the Christian faith and scripture from education. And that just should not be. And so in talking about that, she says, who has the greatest knowledge, who has created both music and musicians, to whom and from whom was given the possibility of bringing forth poetry and prose? Who sees all of history in the right perspective and knows the future also? Who speaks of praising him with music, harp, and all kinds of instruments and also dance? Who has instructed people to make artworks, to praise his name for the temple, and spoken of making things of gold, silver, and precious stone, and then therefore given people the possibility of discovering these realms as well as all others? Our God is the God of all creation and all knowledge. And to act as if education is something that is separate from the truth is to miss altogether the understanding of the word of God and God himself. Very good. All right, Jenna, we'll go to you. Now, yours is a little different. Yours is almost like a booklet. It is. But um, tell us what the title is and a little bit. We actually covered Amy's. Uh, Amy Carmichael's biography last time. Okay. So if people have listened, they should know a little bit about her life from Honey Smith reading that biography. But you go ahead and give us the cliff note version of who who she is in your book. Um, so I read If, then What Do I Know of Calvary Love by Amy Carmichael. And um, Amy was 
born in Ireland in 1867 and then um, grew up in a Christian home and everything and but was just impacted early on with this just desire to really give up her life in service for the Lord and um, wanted and ended up being a missionary in India and she worked there for 55 years without a furlough which just blows my mind um, and so she also wrote several books and lots of devotionals and um, I first like well, I remember hearing about Amy Carmichael when I was little, but then we have these, like, Torchlighter series, like, um, and and the kids watch them all the time, and one of the people is Amy Carmichael, and I was like, wow, such it's such an amazing story. She saved um, all these children from, um, all these temple children, people who, these children who are going to be devoted to the God and um, God's, and... Um, and be have to do terrible, terrible things, and she just started saving them, and then through a lot of her work, that was eventually outlawed, and so it's just really neat. And um, but this book, if is almost a little booklet, you can read it in under an hour, and um, it's more like a poem, and it's just each little different little stanzas, and um, I would kind of say that it's really like a swift kick in the rear. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very like cuts to the quick. It's not wordy. It's, um, if you want to like be convicted and be shooken up, this is a good book to read. And so I would almost recommend that you just read little sections at a time, like a little stanza a day. Um, so I kind of yeah. think we have to start with you actually reading your favorite okay. parts so that people can understand what it is. Like what we're talking it, about? Yeah. Um, so um, I marked this one because I feel like this is so easy to do in marriage. Um, it says, if I cast up a confessed, repented, and forsaken sin against another and allow my remembrance of that sin to color my thinking and feed my suspicions then I know nothing of Calvary love. It says, If a sudden jar can cause me to speak an impatient, unloving word, then I know nothing of Calvary love. And then there's a little asterisk, and it says, For a cup brimful of sweet water cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, however suddenly jolted. And I was like, how often when my kids, like, you know, I'm like, stop it. And you're like, oh. So, and then here's, a like, one that kind of like what you were talking about a little bit, too, and just, um, it says, if monotony tries me and I cannot stand drudgery, if stupid people fret me and little ruffles set me on edge, if I make much of the trifles of life, then I know nothing of Calvary love. So yeah, that gives a taste. It's, kind of, <laughs> it's all like that. Um, does it have a little bit at the end? Does it? Does it have a little? Yeah. I, so I feel like so the all the stanzas are just kind of like that. Just very like ooh, you know, sin revealing. Um, but then the last section is just almost like miniature chapters. 
and they're so like hope filled and grace filled and she just takes you back to to you know to Jesus and so um but I think a lot of the intent of the book was to take us from the shallows of love she talks about that it's easy to be content in the shallows of love but that's not what we want like we want the depths of love Mm -hmm. and that is learning to love like our savior um but she also talks about in the back there's this section where she talks about how grace is like a river and so you know the river doesn't change but the water does and so it's like just as our lives change and as we walk through different circumstances or we struggle with different sins or the lord pulls different things out of us like the river of grace is always there but the grace that we need varies depending on where he has put us and I was just you know so encouraged by that and really like I'm sure honey talked so much about this but her life is so like she just literally like served nonstop her whole life you know and it can be easy to like hear about that and be like I need to go be a missionary you know and like give my life over to the Lord and then I have to think no like the Lord has called me to be here and in my home and in my family and that is also glorifying to the Lord like our life doesn't have to look like hers to glorify the Lord and for us to walk in obedience to him and um but it's just it's some powerful stuff any like (laughs) surprises or paradigm shifts um I don't know if it was really Maybe I was just kind of surprised because she did love people so well, just how quickly she, like, I think when we think of someone who's really loving, we can think of, like, someone who's like, oh, honey, it's going to be okay. And, but that's, sometimes we need that, but that's not, and she's like, but that's not Calvary love, you know. Um, And so just how sometimes, you know, and there's so many ifs of, like, some of the ifs in here are talking about, you know, if I don't call somebody out in truth in truth and don't encourage them towards truth, if I let them continue in this sin pattern or whatever for the sake of peace, then I'm not really loving them. And so she talks about the hard love too, which I think it's easy to get overlooked. Um and just made me start to examine, like, do I do that in my own life for the sake of peace? You know? So, still examining that. <laughs> um, anything you want to grow in or change? Any other things? Um, yeah, I think just dying to myself more. Um, there was a really good if about that. I'm going to um, find it really quick. If I slip into the place that can be filled by Christ alone, making myself the first necessity to a soul instead of leading it to fasten upon him, then I know nothing of Calvary love. That's not the one I was looking for, but that was a really good one. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so DJ. Okay, so yours is a little bit of an outlier because... Johnny Erickson Tata isn't so much from the past, um, but she has been doing ministry and writing for 
five decades. Um, so I felt like we just had to include her in our lineup. And the book you read was actually described as a classic on Amazon. So I'm counting it. It was written 25 years ago. Um, it was recently updated, I guess. So um, give us the title of your book and tell us a little bit about the author. Uh, Heaven, Your Real Home from a Higher Perspective. And it was written by Johnny Erickson Tata. And she's a Christian speaker, author, artist, singer. She's the CEO and founder of Johnny and Friends. And that's an organization that accelerates Christian outreach to uh, the disability community. And just despite all this, this work she does, she's a, she's a quadriplegic since the age of 15. And she's now in her 60s. And she still does all of that. So, yeah, she's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, give a general outline and description of the book. Hold on. <laughs> um, it's Johnny's take on heaven. And a lot of it, you would think, you know, it's her what she is imagining heaven to be like, but she really, she backs it up with scripture and she elaborates on a lot. And I feel like, you know, that's okay. She, she writes in such, she, she's so descriptive and she's so detailed. So she gets in pretty, a lot of deep detail about what she thinks heaven will be like. Um, the book is broken up into three parts. The first part is what will heaven be like? And the second is, will heaven be a be home? And the third is uh, the journey home. And so within each of those parts, she goes into detail about, about heaven and, you know, our heart's desire and longing for heaven and, you know, to be at home with our king. So what did you find uh, to be the most encouraging? I found the most helpful, and I'll paraphrase her, heaven can only be anticipated with the eye of faith. Future divine fulfillments. So anything good here will be new and improved there. Heaven will be an undoing of all the bad as God wipes away every tear and closes the curtain on pain and disappointment. So in reading descriptions of heaven in Ezekiel or Revelation, uh, I couldn't get past the scriptural symbols. You know, there's just some odd descriptions in there. Well, she says don't focus on that, but inside and beyond them in faith. So faith develops the skill of holding on to that heavenly moment. Those moments, we've all had extreme joy, and but it passes quickly. Heaven is that joy, but all the time. So this is a way to think about heaven, to tell the truth. I've been excited about heaven for the wrong reasons. Um, the wrong reasons being to escape hard things on earth. But this entire book sells me on heaven and the home Jesus has prepared for me. So Johnny's a great real estate agent, really, on heaven. <laughs> it's kind of when I sat back and looked at it, I thought, sold, I'm ready. <laughs> Any specific things that you remember that kind of sold you um hold on just the purity of of heaven and 
what really sold me on on the book was um, how she describes heaven. You see these these things you imagine in heaven, or you'll see things in real life, but that's just you know that cause you joy. But that's just like a a glimmer or. There's road signs. Like when you see the sign, um, Smoky Mountains straight ahead, you're not going to look at that sign and be excited for the sign. You're going to wait and see what's beyond the sign to really see the Smoky Mountains. That wasn't her example, but that was mine. Um, That's it. (laughs) Uh, Anything you want to grow in or change after reading the book? Well, there were two things. I want to grow in my love for Jesus and his word. This is how I become better acquainted with the one I will spend eternity with and be excited for the day that I will see him. Secondly, I want to continue to cultivate and grow in friendships. My favorite quote in the book is this, but God determined to people your life with these particular friends. These special ones strike a resonant chord in your heart. There's something about them, some aspect of beauty or goodness that reminds you of God. I have an inkling that when you see the face of God in heaven, you will say, yes, I always knew you. It was him all along that you loved whenever you were with that treasured person. In friendship, God opens your eyes to the glories of himself. And the greater the number of friends with whom you share deep and selfless love, the better and clearer the, clearer the picture of God you will have. I love that because I just love friendships. And I just think, the friendships are so good here. Man, heaven's just going to be so cool with friendships. <laughs> what other quotes? Um, We do not praise God because it does us good, though no doubt it does, nor do we praise him because it does him good, for in fact it does not. Praise is thus strictly ecstatic in the sense that it takes us wholly out of ourselves. It's purely and solely directed upon God. It takes our attention entirely off ourselves and concentrates it entirely upon him. And then one more. When you meet Jesus face to face, face to face, your loyalty and your hardships will give you something tangible, something concrete to offer him in return. For what proof could you bring of your love and faith, faithfulness if this life were to leave you totally unscarred? Okay. Well, thank you. All right. So Janet, tell us about your book. What's the title and who wrote it? I read the book by Elizabeth Elliot. It was the last book that has been published and she died in 2015 and she was born in 1926 um it's interesting uh one of the my favorite quotes in the book is by Joni Erickson Tata who was a friend of Elizabeth Elliot and she says of the book on suffering She says, let our friend show you how suffering is never for nothing. Linger long on this woman's sage wisdom, for there are epiphanies yet to dawn on your horizon, showing you even brighter excellencies of Jesus and more astounding beauties of his gospel. I just really love that. Mm -hmm. 
Who was she? I'm assuming most people know. But. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth Elliot was a, a wife, a mother, a missionary, a speaker, and writer. Uh, we probably most know her because she was married to Jim Elliot, who was uh, one of a group of men that were murdered by the Warani. I don't know how to say that. People, before he could even say a single word to them, those people thought they were cannibals, so they just slaughtered them the minute they landed. Um, she later returned to those same people that killed her husband with her three-year-old daughter and so she could learn their language and translate the Bible into their language so that they would have a Bible. And she later went on to minister to people through her daily through her daily radio program, conferences, and more than 20 books published in her life. So tell us about this one. What was kind of the outline of it or how? She, um, the book on suffering, she defines suffering as very simply, suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. And she said it can be a flat tire a burnt pot roast, could be cancer, or the death of a loved one. Um, she challenges the reader to see that suffering has a purpose and is a gift from the Lord. She says, suffering and love are inextricably bound up together, and love invariably means sacrifice. Another quote, the deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. And after her husband was killed, God put, brought the words of the prophet Isaiah to her mind. When you pass through the waters, I will be with thee. But she said, that was all nice and fine, but God's presence wasn't Jim's presence. And they'd only been married 27 months. And she had waited five and a half years for him to ask her to marry him. So this was really hard. <laughs> um, and then I had a quote. This is what she said when she found out Jim was dead. She said, God's presence did not change the fact of my widowhood. Jim's absence thrust me forced me, hurried me to God, my hope and only refuge. And I learned in that experience who God is, who He is in a way I could never have known otherwise. And so I can say to you that suffering is an irreplaceable medium through which I learned an indispensable truth. I am. I am the Lord. In other words, that God is God. And um, she talks about acceptance of the gifts of suffering, accepting them with gratitude because they come from Him and He loves us and because we can trust Him. And she says, whatever is in the cup that God is offering me, whether it be pain and sorrow and suffering and grief, along with many more joys, I will take it because I trust him. Um, 
she did bury her second husband. He died of cancer, so she's had some grief in her days. She emphasizes over and over that we are in the hands of the God who loves us and died for us, the same hand that flung the stars across the galaxies. If we learn to know God in the midst of our pain, she says, we come to know him as one who is not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He is one who has been over every inch of the road. So I like that she continually in the book, though she's talking about suffering, she is continually focusing back, looking back to God. And uh, this is uh, one thing that she talks about suffering. She says, first, we're destitute. We have nothing. So everything that we have comes from him. So everything is a gift. And second, there are several kinds of offerings that we can make back to God. And we can make sacrifices, uh, excuse me, offering as a sacrifice. And she said that's not to emphasize, emphasize loss or desolation or giving up, but the emphasis is emphasis is on the fact that God has given me something that I can offer back to him. And then the greatest is the offering of obedience. I think one of you touched on that. And um, she talks about that our perspectives need to be transfigured and changed. And she said somebody interviewed the actress who played Corey Ten Boom and this lady had actually met Corey Ten Boom, and she said, you know, what, was, what impacted you most about her? And she said, joy. Her face just radiated joy. And uh, Elizabeth Elliot just says, she had her eyes on another world. She had her eyes on heaven and the world to come where everything was not broken and where she would see the face of her Lord fully. And so Elizabeth Elliot talks about the other world, and that we don't always understand why we go through the sufferings, but if we go through with gratitude and acceptance, on, of course on the things that we can't change, that's going to affect the people around us, and we don't, we don't see all that that's going to do, but it will be effective. God will use it. And then this was her final quote that I thought was so good. There is, in fact, no redemptive work done anywhere without suffering. It was nicely done. It was like a nice little <laughs> essay. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Nice. Two yeah. of those quotes you mentioned are in, in here. here. Yeah, so they must have nicely. been... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, obviously, it, it affected you personally. You've, so, so what would you say about that? Um, help me see that my limitations and sufferings are really gifts that I should be thankful for because they're changing me and they're changing my view of God. And they drive me to Him. And I've really seen that 
over the years. Um, I don't know how that happens. It just, <laughs> it just does. So uh, it, it puts my gaze on him. She helped me put my gaze on him instead of looking at myself trying to deal with my attitudes or be strong on my own. Um, she really drove home the point that he wants to be our refuge and our strength, that he walks with us. I love that quote about that he's already walked down the, every step of the road before you get there. Okay. Is there, do you have a like specific example? You just said, I don't know how it happens, but it does, of just how you've seen that in your life? Well, it is really easy with chronic pain to um, just think about your chronic pain. <laughs> and for me to envy other people doing things that I can't do. And that's not where God wants my eyes. It's like God wants my eyes on the possibilities and not like, I think Corey Tim Boom talked about, we see the backside of the weaving, but God sees the other side of the weaving and he sees all the gold threads. And, you know, it's a beautiful picture, but we look at the back and we go, oh. we just see the, the hardship. And I think um, God is helping me see that he does provide. I've seen his provision, his strength, his uh, encouragement, and it's usually through other people who are walking through hardships. And uh, I have two sisters that have physical ailments. And when we talk to each other and share what we've read or, you know, it's just like a relay. You know, it's, oh, that, that just goes hand in hand with what I heard here or here. And I just feel like I can see the fingerprints of God so many times and uh, when I was younger with my kids and busy and felt good I was pretty self-reliant and I can't be anymore so um, there's a lot of quiet time in my day and uh, I've learned to not fill it with my talk <laughs> but to fill it more with with the Word of God or good books like this. So. Um, any other just applications that you want to make from the book? I want to be more aware that there are two worlds. There's not just what I see, but there's there's the, uh, the spiritual world that is really more real than what we mm -hmm. see. Kind of like what you shared with Joni Erickson Tato. You know, we see flowers. I love to work in my yard, and I enjoy the, um, I think flowers are like smiles from God, you know. But they're, I can't wait to see the real ones in heaven, because they are going to be so amazing. And, uh, and that God, God died, Jesus died to fulfill a promise to me, to change me, to be more like him. And that's a good thing. And so suffering, whether it's a burn pop, I mean, it doesn't have to be chronic pain, but 
it helps me to see where I'm weak and I need God. And that's a good place to be. That's not a bad place to be. Good. Thanks. And thanks for living that because we know you and we've seen you walk that. Just dealing with lots of physical surgeries and pain and just seeing you still have joy and love the Lord and love those around you. So thanks for sharing that, but also living it. Um, well, thanks to the rest of you too. This is a lot to ask to read and summarize a book, but thank you for all your work. And I think it's going to encourage everyone. And we will put the titles of these books in the show notes. Thanks for listening.